Camilla Roy, Kuma, Jiman and Garangarang Man, Richard Bell is a renowned activist, artist and political commentator. In 2003, Bell won the Telstra National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Art Prize for his painting Sienta e Metaphysica, which featured the words Aboriginal art, it's a white thing. No stranger to controversy, Bell's art has been pushing boundaries and constantly questioning what is Aboriginal art. A new documentary from Indigenous filmmaker Professor Larissa Berent, You Can Go Now, explores his life, art and activism. Richard Bell joins me now. Oh, good day, no problem. Now, Richard, you've been described as an enfant terrible, a bad boy of Aboriginal art and an angry Indigenous artist. How do you describe yourself? Oh, well, Gary Foley describes me as the elder terrible. Because <laughs> you're no longer enfant? <laughs> no longer on from It's a very long time ago. How do you feel when you hear those descriptions of yourself? Oh, I just think they're pretty shallow, to be honest. I'm just trying to communicate you know, difficult ideas and look into you know, what has become a really difficult situation. You know, like, um, you know, with everything being clouded by social media and you know, conspiracy theories and all this sort of thing. Um, I'm just battling against that, I think. Mm. Let's go back to the beginning. Uh, you were born in Charleville, Queensland in 1953, and you spent the first years of your life living in a tent with your family before being able to build a tin shanty. What impressions have those formative years had on your work as an artist? It's It's certainly... There, you like um, I, I asked those questions when I was living in a tin shack. Um, later in my in my life, uh, you know, what was I doing there? You like we were the, you know, the descendants of the owners of this whole place, and yet, you know, we were consigned to the outskirts of the town. Um, I just was aware of that that injustice, you know, at a very young age. So. Is it something that you spoke about when living in there as a young boy with your family? Um, yes, but there wasn't there wasn't much in the way of of, of answers, you know, like, uh, at that stage, you know, like, uh, you know, they were too busy caught up in survival, you know. Like, um, I know you have a, a an artwork called No Tin Shack that specifically references this time. What was that process like, bringing that uh, to light, and and what has the reaction to that been since? Yeah, um, well, it was kind of cathartic when I I went back out to to try to find where we actually lived, um, which where that tin shack actually was. That was you know quite an experience for, for me, but making. The film, you know, like, um, didn't sort of didn't get to that kind of uh, personal thing of you know, watching it and like play is probably more evocative for for me now. Mm. If we can go back to Redfern in the seventies, when you were there, when the Black Power movement was really coming to the fore. I understand you spent uh, time with the likes of Gary Foley and Paul Coe. How did this time in your life in- influence your your politics, your activism? 
I think it absolutely shaped me, you know, like um, that that period, you know, like working you know, for the Aboriginal Legal Service for, for some of that time, working in uh, government departments uh, also, um, hanging around, you know, with um, you know, not only those two, but, you know, Cecil Patton, Solly Belair, Lyle Monroe Jr., Billy Craigie, Oh, geez, there were so, so many of Jenny Mundro, Isabel Coe. Oh, God, there were so many. Um, you know, uh, Phyllis Patton, oh, Phyllis Simpson, you know, there's, there were so many. I can't, I can't even name them all. Um, you, you mentioned that time that you spent working there at the Aboriginal Legal Service in Redfern. What did you learn from that experience, from those people that you just mentioned? Oh, pretty much um, uh, they shaped um, my political beliefs, you know, like um, the discussions uh, that we had, you know, almost constantly in discussion about you know, these things, you know, so... It's shaped the way that I've um, uh, I am as an artist. Like um, they taught me a lot of things. You know, like um, that are handy being an artist. They taught me how to speak publicly. You know, like, um, taught me the the history, you know, the political history of of Australia, which I had no chance of learning um, uh, in schools or anything like that. But still not taught. So that was great preparation, you know, like, um, actually for being a, a political artist. Mm. Was that time an exciting one for you or more challenging? <laughs> no, it was, it was so exciting. I was, I was in my 20s. Um, you know, like it was, there was a revolution in the air. There was, uh, it was, you know, lots of um, different, you know, approaches to, to life were, were, finding its way into the the mainstream, particularly in the early parts of the 70s. So it was, it was really exciting. Mm. You mentioned that time helped uh, you form the way that you became a political artist. A number of your works depict scenes of black activism and most notably is Umbrella Embassy, which is a painting depicting the original tent embassy. Um, how has... Black protest influenced how you work as an artist. Oh, <laughs> it's it's fundamental to to be mm. honest. Uh, I've, I've made no secret of, of that. I'm, I'm unashamedly a political artist. Um, you know, the work I make is is political, um, and it's um, I try to uh, present. Um, Radical um, proposals, you know, like um, that are, that are more suitable to Aboriginal people rather than, you know, uh, any compromises. You know, that's it's not my job to compromise. My job is to present probably, the, you know, the most um, unreasonable you know, mm. <laughs> approaches. I suppose you know, like my proposal to the Aboriginal this problem that we have. You know, like it's basically a property dispute, which you've turned into a race debate. So, like, um, my my solution is to give it all back, and then let's have a conversation about you know, like, 
how much you, you get to take back. Mm-hmm. Tell me about Umbrella Embassy. I'm looking at it uh, right now, and for our viewers who aren't aware, there's three um, Indigenous Australians sitting on beautiful green grass lawn with an umbrella, Aboriginal Embassy. One of them is holding a sign saying, destroy Arnhem Land, we destroy Australia. The other one is, we pay to use our own land. And the other gentleman, which do you choose, land rights or bloodshed? Just painting a picture for our listeners who might not know this work. How did this work come about for you and how did you want to juxtapose it with perhaps the, a colonial view of an embassy? Yeah, well, um, there was a decision the night before, you know, like uh, at a meeting of um, Aboriginal people, you know, to who were discussing... Uh, a statement by the Prime Minister of the day, uh, William McMahon, um, that he w- his government would never give Aboriginal people land rights, and and the response was this at this meeting was to to send some young men down to Canberra, you know, and, and establish an Aboriginal tent embassy, but they didn't they didn't have a budget to buy a tent, they didn't ha- have a tent. They didn't own one them, themselves. They knew no one who who owned one in in um, Sydney. And when they went to Canberra, none of the blackfellas had one. Um, and so they asked the people uh, working for the Department of Aboriginal Affairs if they had a tent. None of them had a tent, but one of them had a beach umbrella. <laughs> <laughs> that beach umbrella became the you know the first Aboriginal tent embassy. So. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know you've since used that idea of the tent embassy in your installation, Embassy, which you've taken around the world from New York to Germany. Can you explain the idea behind that travelling work and, and why did you decide to make a roving replica of the tent embassy? The, the time that I decided to make it was 2012. Um, and in the previous three years, there'd been um, protests all around Australia, you know, like, um, where young people had been you know, creating Aboriginal tent embassies. You know, and this was not just in the big cities, this was in the the smaller country towns as well. And I just thought that was that was phenomenal. So I decided that I would make a a work uh, that would be a tribute to to both those young people at that time, but also to the young people, you know, like at the original t- tent embassy. Um and uh, in that tent, I decided I would I would have discussions, you know, like um, with diplomatic freedom you know, mm, mm. on top of artistic freedom, sort mm. of sort of thing. So, the conceptual uh, embassy. Mm. I want to talk about now about Bell's theorem, um, your essay, which analyzes the way Indigenous artworks um, work in and against Western art spaces, you've described Aboriginal art as a commodity. Can you tell me about that and the idea behind Bell's theorem? The idea was to you know, um, critique what was happening with Aboriginal art. Um, um, at, at that time, this was like 2002 and you know, like um, uh, 20 years before that, you know, like um, uh, the structure that was built around Aboriginal art um, that commodified um, the product, um, the the art, the culture. Um, that's what what I was I was talking about. How um, the the industry that caters for Aboriginal art turned it in, into a commodity, um, and 
it's pretty much the same today. I consider, you know, like um, Aboriginal art to be something completely different to contemporary art, to even um, uh, to Western art. So mm. I, I believe that you know, Aboriginal art and Indigenous art, indeed, from around the world, you know, like, um, uh, ex- exists alongside Western art, um, not below it, and, mm. uh, not above it. So mm. I, I was just making those two points, I think, at that time. Mm. Well, isn't, though, art from wherever it comes from commodified anyway? Well, some art is, is, is ceremonial. So, you know, like it's... Um, it's it's transient. It, it sort of happens, and and it's and it's gone. So you can't commodify it. You know, so you know, like a ceremony. You know, like it, it can't be it can't be sold. You know, like uh, once mm. it's once it's done, sort of thing. So mm. I'm interested because you've made a career out of working in what could be described as say colonial spaces. Is that at all contradictory to all of your critiques of Western art spaces? Uh, I don't. I don't think so. You like this. This is where I live. You know, like I'm critiquing. You know, like um, what's around me. Like I'm looking at, at, at what's happening around me, and uh, and I'm critiquing it and, and as part of my my practice. Mm, mm. If I wasn't living in a colonial space, I wouldn't be able to do it. Yeah, yeah. You've appropriated Western art styles in some of your works, most recognisably your series of the Liechtenstein artworks where people might be familiar of that comic-like book depictions, pop art of, you know, white characters with speech bubbles above their heads. In your work, those speech bubbles feature texts along the lines of, thank Christ I'm not Aboriginal and thank Christ I'm not a refugee. What sort of response were you hoping to elicit from these pieces? Um, well, I, I was empathy. You know, like that's the that's the response that I that I, I was looking for. You know, like um, um, not sympathy, you know, empathy. You know, to, to empathise with, with us and um, understand. You know, like um, our struggle and, and um, understand. You know, that um, sometimes we will say and do things that that um, uh, differ and diverge from you know, the dominant way of thinking. Mm. Have you seen over your time as an artist that empathy has been more forthcoming? Um, <laughs> sadly, not so not so much. But um, I, I, I do see a, a change generationally. I, I, I see there's a change. Um, uh, or changes, I see you know, generationally um, the younger people are, are much more more empathetic, you know, um, much more accepting. Actually, you know, like the, this idea of tolerance is nonsense. You know, like you don't, you don't um, tolerate people; you know, you, you accept them. Mm, mm. Artist Richard Bell is discussing. You can go now a new documentary about his life and work here on RN Drive. Richard, your work has been displayed internationally. It's been at London's Tate Modern, the National Gallery of Canada. You've exhibited at numerous biennales. Do you find that your work is received differently, perhaps a greater appreciation overseas than it is here in Australia? Sadly, yes. That that is the case. Um, uh, Why do you think that uh, is? 
<laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> Sorry for being so predictable. <laughs> oh, well, um, okay, well, there's an old, old saying, like uh, you scratch an Aussie, you scratch a racist. And it's sadly, I think that's the, pro- that's the problem. You're like, uh, we haven't overcome you know, the, the racism that um, you know, is, is a legacy of the Australian Constitution.